Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, April the 4th, 2023. Of course, when it comes to wars, time stands still. Some wars never really end. Certainly for the people involved, uh, we did a show last year with the historian Richard Overy about whether the Second World War had ended yet. And of course, in many ways, it hasn't. Same can be true for the American war in Vietnam. We've done some shows on that. Uh, one earlier this year with a Vietnamese writer, Quay Mai, uh, a book about um, America, uh, American Vietnamese children called Just Dust Child. She's a best-selling writer. It's a novel. And we also did a show last year about Vietnamese immigrants to the United States, to the Gulf Coast, uh, a story uh, called The Fisherman and the Dragon by Kirk Wallace Johnson. Uh, these Vietnamese so-called boat people, of course, got out of Vietnam. And today we are speaking also about getting out of Vietnam, or more specifically, getting out of Saigon. Uh, with my author, uh, with my guest, uh, the author of the book, Ralph White. It's a book uh, not just about the drama of getting out of Saigon in 1975, but about White's involvement. He was a much younger man there. Uh, he still looks a rather young man. Well, Ralph, congratulations on, on looking so youthful. Um, let me begin in all seriousness with the question of whether for you the, Vietnam war, the, the, the war in Vietnam has ever ended. It must have haunted you, particularly since 1975 and your involvement, which you write about in this book. Uh, yes, uh, <clears throat> my involvement was, uh, <clears throat> I, I worked in uh, Vietnam twice. I, uh, my first job out of college was uh, working for American Express in the uh, Central Islands in 1971 uh, during the war. I, I operated a, a bank for American Express Bank uh, on a military base. You were a young uh, man then, what, in your 20s? I was 22 then, again, first first job out of college. Which is pretty considerable, and, uh, operating a bank. I mean, did you, did you study banking? No, <clears throat> I wanted to travel like a lot of people coming out of college. And I sent my resume to every bank in the United States that had a, uh, I wanted to keep my hands clean. So banking appealed to me. Uh, I sent my resume to every bank in, in the United States that had an overseas branch. In those days, that was 70. Now that's 2000. Uh, and uh, I got five offers uh, and American Express was the best. Uh, they offered me um, $13,000 a year which was big money yeah. in those Where days. did you graduate? Which college were you? University of Maryland. So you're a young man. You got this job operating a bank for a lot of money. And where was the bank? The bank was in Pleiku in the central highlands of Vietnam. Um, and uh, That was just the afterthought, Ralph, right? Mm -hmm. you, you thought you might be ending up in Michigan or Indiana, and you ended up in central Vietnam. The irony is that... Uh, uh, University of Maryland is is a mile from Washington, D.C., and uh, I had actually marched on the Pentagon as a war protester twice. Uh, 
uh, and uh, uh, which which got me in hot water back home because my father was a, a decorated uh, dive bomber pilot in World War Two. So the war. Um, um, so it's interesting. You say you want to keep your hands clean, and so you went into banking. I'm not sure all kids would agree. Uh, was this in contrast with joining up and becoming part of the war itself? Well, I, uh, I don't think I'd have done that. Uh, again, you're, you're getting inside a, the mind of a, of a very young man, not, not the guy I am now. But that's, uh, um, that's what the book is. I mean, it's, it's about your story of, of how you as a 27-year-old American banker saved the lives of 113 Vietnamese civilians. So in, in many senses, it's a memoir. You know, I, I sometimes refer to it as the 13-day memoir. Uh, what happened was uh, after I came back to, Amer uh, to, to New York uh, from having worked with American Express, I switched over to Chase. Uh, Chase put me through their management training program, and, uh, which was basically accounting and financial statement analysis. If you did well in the program, they, you got your choice of assignment. Uh, Chase had a uh, a very th a thriving international department at the time. If you didn't do well, they told you where you were going. If you did well, you got your choice. If you didn't and do well, had... you probably would have got sent to Maryland. <laughs> Bingo, or uh, yeah, or even even worse. So, uh, so so I got my choice, and I said, "Well, send me back to Southeast Asia," because I I'd, I'd worked there. I traveled around Southeast Asia as a 22, 23 year old. Uh, and they said, well, um, how about Bangkok? Well, that was good. Couldn't do better than that as far as I was concerned. So I showed up in Bangkok and I was basically trying to find a place to live and buying a car and digging. This in, was getting... what year? This was uh, 1975, early 1975. And uh, I would say uh, probably February of 75. And um and then, you know, the, I read the news like everybody else. The North Vietnamese were, uh, were uh, taking over the northern provinces in Vietnam and marching over the uh, demilitarized zone. And, and, and just to remind people, especially younger listeners and viewers who might not be so familiar with this story, at this point in early 1975, there were two Vietnams. There was North Vietnam and South Vietnam. Bingo. Uh, there was a demilitarized zone... Uh, Separating the two, uh, uh, that happened after the Geneva Conventions. Uh, the French had been in there fighting the French Indochina Wars. Uh, they left after the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. Uh, I don't think your readers are going to want to go into the back history of your your, your viewers. But uh, so Saigon was collapsing. Uh, Vietnam was collapsing. Uh, the war was, the Paris Peace Accords had been, uh, two years earlier, in uh, in February of uh, '73, uh, that's when the United States pulled its troops out. We were left with only the the Paris Peace Accords allowed us only 50 troops. Uh, I believe that did not include the uh, the Marine Guard at the embassy, uh, which was probably 20 20 troops. So there were 
less than 70 armed Americans in. Uh, but before we in before we get to Saigon in 1975, what was Bangkok like? Was it overrun with American GIs? No, because the uh, the only there was no army in. Uh, we didn't have army troops in uh, uh, Thailand. Uh, we had we 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 had uh, air bases. Uh, the air force had bases in Udon and. Uh, uh, and uh, Nakhon Kassem. Uh, there was a naval base in Satahip, uh, but uh, there were no armed forces personnel in, in Bangkok, per se, no. So how did you get from uh, Bangkok to Saigon? And just again, a, a note to readers, uh, Saigon no longer exists. It's still a place, but now it's called Ho Chi Minh City. So did you get redeployed by Chase from Saigon, uh, from Bangkok to Saigon? Yes, that's how my book opens. I, uh, I, I came back from uh, a weekend at the local uh, beach resort, uh, Pattaya, and, uh, you know, where I'd been sailing and scuba diving and generally having a doing the kinds of things that uh, young men do. And, uh, and there was a, a driver from our, our bank uh, sitting in his uh, car in, the, in my parking lot. And he said, uh, the big boss wants to, uh, wants to talk to you. And, uh, and so I quickly uh, showered and put on a shirt and, and uh, got in the back of his car and and went to the manager's house, and and our uh, regional manager was uh, sitting there with him beside the pool. The two guys, the two senior managers, my boss in Thai, in Bangkok, and my boss in who had come in from Hong Kong. And uh, long story short, they asked me if I would uh, go in and and take over Saigon branch. Sounds like the beginning of a movie, Ralph. You know. Uh, we're selling film rights. Uh, you even got a nice, uh, you got a nice blurb from a certain um, uh, Nelson DeMille, an amazing tour de force and a stunning human drama. So you get redeployed from um, from Bangkok to Saigon. You poo-poo this a little bit, but it must have required some degree of bravery. I mean, not everyone would have agreed to take this job, would they? Uh, no, in fact, um, the guy they offered it—they offered it to somebody else the day before. They offered it to me, and he just—he just laughed at them. They probably uh, sent him to Maryland. Yeah, that's punishment. <laughs> just a little backstory on uh, uh, on why 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 did they why did they need somebody? Our manager in Saigon was a Dutchman, carried a Dutch passport, and he was pretty sure that the American embassy wasn't going to help him in the final days. So uh, he wanted out. He was, he was leaving. He said, if you, don't, if you don't let me go, I'm going to go on my own. So here we have uh, a, the, the, a, a photo of the Chase Manhattan Bank in uh, Saigon. It, for people just listening, this does not look like the kind of building one normally associates with the Chase Manhattan Bank. It was a small bank, Ralph. It was pretty small. Uh, we had 50 employees, uh, but it was a full service, uh, uh, international trade, uh, uh, commercial accounts, personal accounts, um, foreign exchange. We, we, we were a full service bank. 
So you show up, you take the job, you go to Saigon. Tell me a little bit about what you remember of Saigon in the spring of 1975. Well, remember, I had um, I'd been there four years earlier with American Express. Uh, m most of the time I'd been up country in Pleiku and Kuihua. I had spent very little time in Saigon, but I, I, it's not a complex place. Uh, District 1, the center of the city, is kind of easy to figure out. Um, I, I, I found myself comfortable. I like Saigon. I, uh, for anybody, I haven't been back recently since um, I, once, I, w I went once since it became Ho Chi Minh City um, by incredible coincidence. My former brother-in-law uh, became uh, ambassador uh, to, uh, uh, from the United States to uh, Vietnam, and I uh, went to visit him. Uh, but uh, Saigon is, uh, the first thing you notice you get off the plane is the incredible heat and humidity, depending on the time even of year. For, even in comparison to Bangkok, which is probably, which is pretty hot and humid. It was, it was, it's, it was as much as I could stand. It was, uh, you walk outside, your, your clothing gets moist right away from perspiration. Your, uh, 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 just, uh, everything, everything gets wet. You're, uh, you're sweating all day long. It's even indoors. It's, you know, you have the shade, not every place it was air conditioned. Again, it sounds if not a movie out of a, a Graham Greene novel, you, you, you say so you arrive in, in Saigon and, and is your job to shut the bank down or simply run it? My uh, mission was to keep the bank open as long as possible. And when it was no longer possible to keep it open, to try to rescue as many of the Vietnamese staff as I could, that was it. And then just, when you arrive, so do you remember the exact date you arrived in Saigon? April 14. And in April 14, what was the situation in terms of the war and this imminent North Vietnamese takeover of Saigon? Well, the big news was <clears throat> that the, uh, the northern provinces uh, had fallen to the enemy. They were under the control of the North Vietnamese, the communists. Um, the... Uh, the South Vietnamese troops that had been stationed up there uh, had uh, their their leaders had left. The commander at uh, uh, the commander in Tu Corps, which was uh, the, the 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 top the northernmost uh, province, uh, we called I Corps Military Region One. Uh, the number uh, the second one down uh, uh, the chain uh, was. Uh, in, Pleiku, where I was, had been located, that was called Two Corps. The Two Corps South Vietnamese general had, was the first one to, uh, uh, to to stop fighting. He 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 ran away. He, he got on a helicopter and left, uh, and uh, and moved to Paris. And the South Vietnamese, the senior South Vietnamese, the generals, the politicians, haven't got a very good press. You don't give a very good press in your book. To the, 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 the then, it wasn't your uh, brother-in-law, the then U.S. Ambassador Graham Martin. How were the Americans behaving? Um, the Americans, uh, that's, a, that's a, a complex question because the, there, were, there were journalists there. There were still some business people. 
Um, there were um, uh, commercial organizations like mine. Uh, and, and then there were the diplomats at the embassy. Uh, I would say most people, most the businessmen, the journalists, the journalists were leaving uh, because they don't need bricks and mortar. They could just leave anytime they wanted. They had relatively few employees, a cameraman, uh, uh, and, um, and so they were basically winding down. The commercial organizations were closing down. Uh, Bank of America had no, uh, no expatriate managers there, no Americans. Uh, the Citibank had uh, no Americans there. There's a little side story. If you want to circle back, we can talk about one of their young guys who, who came back completely on his own, uh, not, not with the, the bank per se and helped his former employees to get out. So, uh, so, right. so let's get to the heart of the story. Uh, you go back to a, run this bank, maybe to shut it. It's a time of enormous political instability. The, the North Vietnamese are about to take over the, um, the city. You, um, you're a 27-year-old, quote-unquote, American banker. Uh, and the heart of the story in getting out of Vietnam of, of, of Saigon is how you helped save 113 Vietnamese civilians. Who were these civilians and how did you become involved in their story? Well, they're the employees of the bank. Um, I, uh, as I say, my, my mandate was keep the bank open as long as possible and then help the employees get out uh, as many of them as I could. Uh, I had a priority list there were four uh, local officers, Vietnamese officers, and um, my first priority was to get them out because we were pretty sure that they would be executed uh, by the, the communists when they uh, entered the city. Uh, if, if I could get them out and I still had more capacity, I would take out the, uh, the division uh, managers, the, the, the loan manager, the credit manager, the uh, commercial accounts, the uh, foreign exchange, the back office managers, the vault manager, those people. Uh, we, we never talked about getting everybody out. Uh, taking them out, meaning you would bring them to the United States or you would take them to Bangkok or wherever they wanted to go? Yeah, that that we never, management never gave me a guidance. On and that. The was assumption was them. that if they were left and caught by the North, Viet North Vietnamese, they would have been, been imprisoned or worse? We assumed that they'd be shot. Uh, the reason we thought that was um, uh, when the communists had taken over uh, uh, Phnom Penh in uh, uh, neighboring Cambodia, uh, they'd killed all of the uh, employees of American organizations. Uh, and uh, and moreover, in uh, some years earlier, in 1968, during the Tet Offensive of 1968, when the uh, North Vietnamese streamed down over the, the demilitarized zone, they'd, uh, they'd lined civilians up uh, by the side of muddy pits and shot them and just rolled them into the pits and uh, covered them over. In an odd uh, way, so there's an eerie history repeating itself, uh, both tragic uh, uh, in uh, in Afghanistan, we've done a number of shows on American withdrawal from Afghanistan and the, perhaps the lack of moral responsibility that uh, some Americans had towards their Afghan friends and associates and staff. 
I'm guessing uh, when the U.S. withdrew from Kabul uh, that you thought immediately of your experience in Saigon. Are those experiences quite similar, do you think? You know, there, there are similarities, um, but uh, uh, the irresponsibility, I think, and the abandonment of our allies, that's, that's obviously uh, in common with both situations. But uh, the situation in Kabul was, was quite a bit worse, I think. In uh, Saigon, uh, you have to remember, in Saigon, uh, Congress passed a, uh, an a-, a law that uh, uh, granting 130 uh, visas, 130,000 visas to uh, escaping Vietnamese. If you, basically, if you could get out, then America would take you in, give you a visa that wouldn't turn you away at the border. Also, America set up uh, very uh, efficient, large, efficient uh, refugee camps. We had camps in uh, Guam, where I was, uh, uh, where I stayed. Uh, we had uh, refugee camps in the Philippines, where I stayed. Also, uh, I came through a processing center in. Uh, uh, I, I accompanied my employees out of the country. Uh, I was just as much a refugee as they were. I, I sat on the floor of cargo jets and slept in, in tents and uh, until the Chase Manhattan Bank. Uh, how much? Um, how much was this? And, and maybe I'm not sure if this is the right word. This mission. How, how much uh, correspondence, communication did you have with the U.S. government, with the embassy, and with people back in the U.S.? Uh, while I was in Saigon, I was in the embassy every day, uh, uh, part of every day. I'd, uh, I'd go in, I'd knock on doors. They all knew me after a, a few days. Uh, and uh, and at, a, at a certain point, I said, okay, I'm ready to close the bank. Uh, I had clearance from head office uh, and uh, and they said, no, we're not going to give you we're not going to support you. Uh, uh, I, I said, oh, well, I'm closing the bank and I'm going to get my people out. And they said, no, we don't want you to close the bank and we don't even want you to talk about getting people out because that's that's disloyal. That's a defeatist. Uh, we don't want Americans talking like that. Uh, and and I said, well, wh- what do you want me to do then? What? What's your, what are you well, telling? Was this, was this Graham Martin, the U.S. ambassador or somebody else? Two, the two top guys, uh, uh, Ambassador Martin, Graham Martin, and uh, yes. the number two. Yes. So uh, shameful uh, behavior on their part. Complete disregard, dis- complete lack of any kind of concern with these people who you say were likely to be executed once the South Vietnamese got their hands on. Shameful sorry. Shameful is an awfully polite way to, to phrase well, it. Well, how would you polite book. it? How would you describe it? I think he was psychotic. I think uh, he just didn't face reality. Everybody knew that, that Saigon had days left, and we had tens of thousands of Vietnamese allies that we were trying to get out. And by delaying the evacuation, it ensured that some of them were going to be killed, our friends, were going to be killed and sent to prison camps in the jungle. And uh, I, I know people that that happened to get, they got caught there uh, after uh, the fall of Saigon. We wouldn't even, here, one of my themes is, uh, we wouldn't even have the phrase, the fall of Saigon in our language, if it weren't for Graham Martin's psychosis. 
if somebody else had been in that job, if a rational person had been in that job, then the uh, the, the the far flung consulates would have been closed. The uh, soldiers who had married Vietnamese and had uh, set up uh, residences in the, in the countryside, they would all be called in and evacuated in a very orderly basis. None of that was in the the companies like mine would be wound down slowly. So at the end, there would only be a few people at the embassy, a few uh, very, very essential staffers, helicopters running all the time at the airport in order to get the just, you know, a handful of people out. But we had we had uh, tens of thousands of, of friends that uh, we were trying to get out the last minute because Ambassador Martin refused to admit that it was over. And his number two, Wolfgang Lehman, the deputy chief of mission, also, uh, I don't think he was psychotic, but he was uh, just one of the heel-clicking idiots that, uh, that the embassy employed to, uh, to make sure that Martin got his way. How, how uh, further up the chain do you think uh, we can pinpoint accountability for this? Were there people who Martin reported to the Secretary of State, even the U.S. president at the time? Well, it's, uh, it's tempting because of the chain of command, but um, I'm, uh, I, I'm a supporter of Henry Kissinger's. I, uh, I, uh, I, I think he's, uh, he was a good Secretary of State. Uh, I think he would like to have had a better ambassador. I think he realized that, uh, that Martin had these... Uh, uh, psychological barriers. Well, he could to, have just fired him, uh, couldn't he? I mean, there's no lack of ambassadors that he could have selected instead of Martin. What were you going to do then? If you if you fire the ambassador, then the deputy chief of mission is going to take over. And, and were and all Lehman these people, in a sense, like, you say he was psychotic? Were they was were they psychotic casualties of the war? This whole class of 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 American diplomats. And perhaps yeah, when, people had spent simply too much time in Vietnam. Uh, one theory on that is that uh, Martin had uh, adopted his sister's son uh, as his own. I guess his sister died, and the the child was uh, was an orphan, so he uh, he adopted it. So he raised his his nephew as his son, uh, and and that that young man. Uh, became a helicopter pilot in the Vietnam War, and he was killed, killed in action. And there's a theory that uh, because uh, Martin's son uh, had been killed in action, that he uh, had uh, a commitment uh, to make sure that his, uh, his, his son hadn't died in vain and that he just was not going to take the flag down uh, over the embassy ever wasn't ever going to happen. It must have been the eeriest atmosphere, uh, Ralph, at this point in Saigon. Everyone's desperately scampering around trying to figure out how to get out. What was your mission? How did you address this in terms of saving your quote-unquote Vietnamese civilians? Well, I had had about 20 contacts at the embassy, not just the top two guys. Uh, my, My minder at the embassy was uh, Jim Ashida, uh, who was the our uh, America's commercial attaché there. Uh, so I saw him every day. I talked to him every day. Uh, but I also had uh, 
contacts with the CIA. Uh, I had contacts uh, in the economic section. Uh, I had contacts in the political section uh, with the uh, mission warden, which was the sort of unofficial security force. Uh, and so I would just I would just wander around uh, the embassy, talking to them, trying to get a, a fix. And uh, and it was uh, I had a eureka moment uh, that I describe in the book when I I go to visit the mission warden, and uh, uh, coincidentally he had uh, the same last name as mine. His name was George White, and he was retired uh, from the army. I could see his captain's bars on his. Uh, uh, on his desk, and uh, and he was typing uh, a typewriter on his desk, which was already a little suspicious because expatriates didn't do their own typing in those days. Uh, and his secretary came and called him out, uh, and he left the room, and I was left in his office by myself. And I, I wandered around to see, call me nosy maybe, I wandered around uh, to see what he was working on, and it was Vietnamese names on a flight manifest, which was illegal. It was impossible to get Vietnamese out of the country unless they were uh, married to an American or the children of an American. And uh, he was, and I, he came back into the room and I said, you're getting your employees out, aren't you? And he said, yes, I am. I said, is, is that a, a program that the Chase Manhattan Bank could use, do you think? And he said, yeah, you probably could. But he didn't tell me who to go to or, or how to get on the program. And I spent the rest of the time I was uh, in Saigon uh, establishing the contacts with the embassy. And, uh, you know, I, if you've read the book, you know that there's a... Well, we don't want to uh, give away a, the whole book, uh, Ralph, because we want everyone to read it. And in a way, it's a thriller, <laughs> although it ends... I mean, <clears throat> I'm not sure it would be fair to say that it ends happily, but it could have ended worse. Well... It uh, it ended. I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind saying that. Uh, well, it's in the title. Yeah, I mean, you got the, the people book, out. The I mean, you got. I got. Uh, I got a hundred and thirteen. Get everybody out, uh, out, or were there some you had to leave? I got. I got everybody out who wanted to go. I got again. We had about fifty employees, and uh, I told them that I would take out their their spouses and their children. But uh, I couldn't take out their their uh, parents or their aunts and uncles or brothers and sisters, just their. Right, and here we have a picture of, of some of these. How um, how did they respond? They must have been hysterical. Well, they, they keep in mind they'd been they'd been coming to work, they'd been reading the papers, they'd been listening to the news, they they knew that the cause was lost, that Saigon. The Battle of Zuan Lac, the last bottle, bat, the last fight in Vietnam, was uh, was forty miles away from Saigon, and when that battle ended, there were there were no troops uh, 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 to to protect Saigon. Everybody knew it. So why were they coming to work? Why why weren't they panicking? Why didn't they just you know start paddling down the Saigon River to the sea? And the answer is they expected the Chase Manhattan Bank to help them. And, uh, and the Chase Manhattan Bank had, had sent me in to, to help them, but I hadn't been getting, given a blueprint on, on how to do it. Did you have the full support of your senior people back in the U.S.? 
I did. I had right up right up to the chairman. David Rockefeller was the chairman, and uh, uh, I was told many times, several times, that uh, that he supported the mission, and uh, uh, they'd uh, they'd given me uh, uh, twenty five thousand dollars in cash to uh, in in case I had to grease the wheels somewhere to to get it out, and I uh, and I I took a uh, a thirty eight caliber revolver of my own. I stuffed it in my briefcase and took it to Saigon and uh, everywhere I went, I carried uh, more, more currency than I would make in, in two years uh, and, uh, and a loaded revolver in case 25,000 wasn't enough. And did you get all the, the 113 uh, Vietnamese civilians, did they all get on the same flight or did they get out at separate time? Good question. Uh, we... Uh, uh, Jim Ishida, the uh, commercial attache I mentioned earlier, uh, gave me a call one day and said, uh, I can uh, I can put, I forget the number, but it was something like 70. I can give you uh, 70 seats on a bus to get through to Tansanud Air Base. Uh, and once you're there, you can, you know, just try to try to get them on planes. Uh, and so I, I got the... Uh, you know, what we called group one, they were sort of the top priority. Uh, they didn't really fit uh, the preconceived notion of officers, department heads and that stuff. That was, it was kind of, we just, I asked uh, my, uh, my senior Vietnamese officer to, to do pick who was gonna go with us. And uh, we took about 70 out on that first uh, uh, trip. I got them to the air base and I was gonna leave with them. I checked out of the hotel. Uh, I was going to leave with that first group and and leave the other 70 behind. And uh, and I got to the air base and uh, and I uh, manifested uh, that those employees and their families on a flight. Um, and and they uh, and then I ran into the by by chance. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of people wandering around. By chance, I ran into the commercial attaché again out there, and he said, "Ralph, I can, I can get you uh, 70 more seats on a bus tomorrow." And I had to think: Do I want to leave or get out of this mess myself, uh, or do I want to go back and take my chances and and get the get the rest of them out? And I just shrugged my shoulders and said, "Well, hey, why not? I'll go back." I was, mind you, I was 27 years old and. I'm not the man I am. Well, not all 27-year-olds would have been quite as heroic or as selfless as you. Um, so you got a, you, you basically saved the lives of 113 Vietnamese civilians. Did you? Here we have a photo for people watching of some of those civilians. Did you keep in contact with them, or did they just leave and you lost contact? Uh, recall that I, uh, my job was in Bangkok. So after I took uh, uh, these people back to uh, our employees back to New York, I turned them over. David Rockefeller shook my hand. And, uh, and then I went back and I took my mother to, it was Mother's Day. So I took my mother to, to a restaurant uh, up in Connecticut. And, uh, and then I got on a, a flight and headed back to Bangkok. And I, I stayed there two years. And then they offered me a, a position in Hong Kong. I stayed there uh, four years. And so I didn't get back until I didn't get back to New York until six years after the fall of Saigon. By then, uh, I'd lost all contact. There was no email in those days. Uh, 
Uh, they didn't have phone numbers because they just they were refugees. Uh, they just uh, disappeared into the fabric of America. They became American citizens, started raising families. Um, so you have, but you have since been reunited with some of them. I mean, back in 2022, last year. Andrew, it's just the craziest story. I mean, I had been trying for 47 years to to locate even one of these uh, refugees that I brought out, and uh, and I came up with the idea of. Uh, of, of putting some uh, text in uh, the newsletters of Vietnamese American associations, hoping that uh, somebody would, would read it and, and, and help me out. And so I, I sent every Vietnamese American association in America uh, some text saying, Ralph White from the Chase Manhattan Bank, uh, Saigon 1975 is looking for uh, his former employees. Uh, anybody with any information, please contact. And I gave my phone number. And uh, and I got a phone. I got a phone call from the head of the the New Jersey uh, Vietnamese American Association, uh, Tony Nguyen. And he said, look, my dad got uh, stuck behind enemy lines after the fall of Saigon. And he spent 10 years in a prison camp uh, getting uh, basically tortured every day, psychological torture, physical torture. So I know what your your employees would have gone through. If they'd, uh, if they hadn't, if you hadn't gotten them out, so I want you to come to our uh, gala, our Tet Lunar New Year gala party. So my girlfriend and I went, uh, and uh, we were the only uh, Caucasians in a in a sort of auditorium uh, of uh, of 300 Vietnamese, and I didn't know where to start. I sat down at a, one of these big round tables you have at banquet houses. And uh, I, really, I didn't. Everybody was speaking Vietnamese except for the two of us. And a woman sat down next to me and said, "What are you doing here?" And and I just laughed and I said, "I'm trying to find the employees of the Chase Manhattan Bank Saigon branch from 1975." And she and she said, "My best friend used to work oh for my the Chase Manhattan Saigon." And she pulled out her cell phone and she and she dialed it and she said, "Minya, you want to talk to Ralph White?" And and I and and a, and a second later, I was I was talking to the woman who, who who was the senior officer among the the Vietnamese, and through her I've met uh, some of the others, and uh, and uh, I I sent twenty uh, copies of my book to uh, to the twenty Vietnamese families I brought out. You know, I think of Schindler's List. I mean, do you think of yourself? I know. You're you're not a, a showy kind of guy, and you clearly wrote this book as a as a kind of catharsis. But you were remarkably brave. I mean, not everyone would have chosen to do what you did to risk their own life for people you didn't even know. Um, bravery. I've I've heard that. Uh, I I still have a better way of explaining it. I think. Uh, Maybe I was brave, but uh, I have another feature, another personality uh, feature that came into play, uh, and that is uh, willfulness, uh, which which can be good if it's if it's directed towards something worthwhile, or it can be it can lead you down a very dark alley. Uh, uh, I, for some reason, my upbringing in a small uh, town in New England. Uh, 
uh, I don't know what it was. Maybe, maybe having uh, the father I had, uh, I don't know. I, I ended up being incredibly willful. When Ambassador Martin said, you, ha you can't get your people out, we won't let you get your people out. I just, I said to myself, people like you can slow people like me down, but you can't stop us. And I'm glad I didn't say it aloud because he would have redoubled his efforts to stop me. But what I did was I just, I started every trick in the book, every trick in the book. I could, I could fly a plane, I had a pilot's license, so I thought maybe I could steal a plane. Uh, I, have, uh, I had a, a license to helm uh, ocean-going vessels. I don't know how it came into all this at 27, but um, I could, maybe I could get them down the river uh, I had my gun. I could shoot my way out. I don't know. Uh, I, I just thought of every way I could. And finally, I, I found a clandestine channel inside the embassy that was helping people like me and, and my employees. Did you ever tell your father this story? Um, I haven't really told anybody in my family the whole story. You never told I, your mom when you went and had lunch with her in Connecticut that you'd risk your life for this 113 I, Vietnamese civilians? Do you know, at, at that point, uh, I was I, I was a little shell-shocked, I think. I, I don't, as you say, I'm not the kind of guy who toots his own horn that much. Uh, so why did you write so, the book then? Because inevitably with this kind of book, people are going to ask you about yourself. I mean, this is not a, a dispassionate book. This is a memoir of your own heroism. You know, again, a good question. You've, you've, this is not your first rodeo. Uh, I, I, uh, I found myself in many conversations over the years, over the last 48 years, uh, trying to explain uh, that we wouldn't have the phrase the fall of Saigon in our language if we hadn't had a psychotic ambassador in Vietnam. And and you, you have this conversation over and over again, and you start sounding like the dummy. You start sounding like, wow, what what's the into this guy? Uh, you know, talking about ambassadors as psychotic and uh, and and it just didn't it didn't play well verbally. So I thought, well, you know what? I could I could maybe I could write it up. And uh, and so I started writing it and I, I wasn't very good at it. I didn't like the, the voice. Uh, so what I did was I formed a, a creative writing group at Columbia University for um, uh, alumni of Columbia. I, I went to graduate school at Columbia. And, um, and for 10 years, I was president of the organization that I founded, the Columbia Fiction Foundry. And I got better and better and better over a decade of, of dedicated uh, writing. I finally uh, got my voice. And uh, I had a, the epiphany was, I was writing fiction at the time. And of course, when you write fiction, you try to make it as realistic as you possibly can. And you learn there, there are sort of craft tricks of the trade that novelists use to make the reader believe that they're inside the character's head. And so I, I said, you know what, maybe there's, maybe that toolkit, that, uh, that craft kit that writers use can be used, the, the same kit that's used to make 
fiction seem true? Maybe that kit can be used to make true, uh, the truth sound incredible. And that's what I did. Final question, Ralph. I began uh, uh, with the, the question of whether any war ends, World War II, the war in Vietnam, in many ways it hasn't ended. Did the writing of this book, did it, was it a, a kind of a catharsis for you? Did it help end these memories? It clearly was perhaps the most intense few days or weeks in your life. Um, has, uh, w- having written the book, having got it out of your system, having putting it out in the world, this remarkable story of yourself and this and the saving of these these Vietnamese uh, civilians. Um, how do you think differently now about the real experience in Vietnam, having have, ha- having written the book, getting out of Saigon? Did it did it help you get out of Saigon too, or did you even want to get out of Saigon? Uh, well, I like Saigon. I'm sure I'll go back. Well, I don't mean uh, it literally. I meant in terms of your nightmares, waking up in the middle of the night, thinking about this, this must be something that's haunted you for 50 years. Catharsis is a good word. I think uh, that that play that came into play. Yes. Uh, I did want to get it off my chest. Uh, But also uh, there were, in addition to my willfulness or whatever courage I showed at the time, uh, there were a couple of other key success factors. Um, One of them was, uh, the, uh, the two foreign service officers who ended up helping me. Uh, uh, Ken Moorfield uh, was uh, an aide to the, uh, to the ambassador. He was 33 at the time. Uh, he'd gone to West Point, was wounded in Vietnam, came back as a foreign service officer. And he was running the uh, evacuation control center at the air base. And he, he's the one who permitted me to uh, to adopt the uh, employees. Uh, without him, it wouldn't have happened. Also, uh, Shep Lohman was a more senior uh, diplomat at the embassy. He was the minister counselor of political affairs. Uh, without him, uh, the buses wouldn't have happened. So uh, I would say uh, the second factor over and above whatever I brought to the table was uh, the assistance of those foreign service officers. The third factor that I really wanted to get into print was the extent to which sheer luck played. It just, it is, you, you read some of those chapters and you think, oh my God, if, if this tiny little thing, like for instance, the, the uh, reading the flight manifest at the mission warden's, warden's office, uh, if I hadn't seen that, if I hadn't had the curiosity to walk behind the desk and read you know, pull the paper up and, and see the Vietnamese names. If I hadn't done that, my, my people might never have gotten out. And that there are half a dozen of those other coincidences that uh, had to fall into place in, in the right order for, uh, for us to be successful. In the hands of Graham Greene, there may have been some suggestion of the value of religion. Did it make you more or less religious, all those chances? I'm... I don't really have a spiritual life, uh, but I, in the book, I do say uh, when I go visit, uh, when I went to visit the Chase Manhattan Bank's uh, uh, executive vice president for the international division, and uh, his name was Francis Xavier Stanker, uh, a, uh, uh, 
a devout Catholic, and he had a, a very thick, uh, sort of three-inch thick uh, leather-bound Bible on his desk. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe the God of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph uh, uh, had a hand in it. 